Welcome to the Bridge Policy Download, produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Today, we're bringing you a conversation between Matthew Mitchell, Senior Research Fellow and Director of the Equal Liberty Initiative here at Mercatus, and Dr. Bruce Yandel, Distinguished Adjunct Fellow here at Mercatus. They discuss Bruce's latest economic situation report for June 2021, including turning the corner on the COVID-19 pandemic economy, current inflation stats, the difference between crises and serious problems Americans are facing today, and much more. If you'd like to contact a scholar involved in this episode, please email mercatusoutreach at mercatus.gmu.edu. Well, welcome, Bruce. It's a pleasure to talk with you again. Uh, it's early June. I think it's been about uh, a quarter of a year since we, we last spoke, and we're continuing to see a lot of changes in the economy. I'm excited to have a chance to talk to you a little bit today about what's going to be happening going forward with the macro economy, as well as with public policy and expectations. Matt, it's always good to speak with you. And a, a lot happens in three months, doesn't it? When we are attempting to understand what's going on in the economy, what are, what are we dealing with here in an economy that is, uh, I think, in one sense of the word, still searching, if, if we can use the figure of speech, still searching for its footing, coming out of a command situation with, I would expect, more command on the way uh, as we uh, attempt to figure out what direction will this economy take and where will we end up a year from now or two years from now? Yeah, so let's let's dig right into it. Uh, I've got a lot, a lot of questions for you today. So I think maybe the first question is inflation. So, you know, there's an old joke that some libertarians have predicted 14 of the last zero hyperinflations. Uh, now we're looking at a situation where, you know, there has been an, a great deal of stimulus uh, injected into the economy. There's all, quite a bit of pent up demand. There's obviously, you know, been a reconfiguration of oh, many sectors, a reallocation of capital and labor across sectors. W- what are your expectations for inflation going forward? I think we have inflation now, that is uh, inflation that I would say is meaningful. By that, I mean maybe three, three and a half percent, I think is occurring now. As with many other measuring rods, the best measuring rod we have for inflation, uh, the consumer price index or the expenditures index and the GDP accounting, those measures obviously are never perfect but they're seriously flawed right now because of the command economy. For example, the rent component in the consumer price index is faulty because of federal programs. Landlords are not able to raise their rent. And then there's a piece of the CPI that is sort of going through the ceiling, and that's the price of used cars. But the reason it's going through the ceiling is because of the severe shortage I'm using that word advisedly, the severe shortage of new automobiles, going back to semiconductors, supply chain problems, which then go back to a command economy problem. So our measuring rods are not real good, but the one that that I guess is most meaningful to me is what I see when I go shopping for groceries, the things that I buy as a consumer. And so I'm seeing inflation. As I pointed, as I mentioned at the very outset, I think we've got three and a half percent. You know, years ago, that was considered to be a big number. No more. But it seems to me it's inevitable that we will see a larger number than three and a half percent, maybe a year from now. 
Because Matt, as you as you and I know, there's just a huge amount of untapped purchasing power that is sitting out there in bank accounts and elsewhere, waiting to be tapped. At some point, those dollars chasing goods will make a difference in the price level. It seems to me. So one of the things I think that is kind of interesting about this, and you mentioned measuring rods, is what is counted in inflation and what is not. So you know, when I talk to friends. And they say, boy, you know, inflation, it seems to be going up. Look look at the price of gas or look at the price of housing. My response is, well, actually, you know, typically as we measure inflation, uh, CPI actually excludes those factors. To a lot of people, that doesn't make sense because uh, those are huge parts of your cost of living. Why would you not include that? And I, I think the reason is that, you know, inflation is we're trying to distinguish general price level changes, which is across all goods, from relative price level changes, which is, you know, if something happens in a particular market, supply or demand changes, that's a change in relative prices. But inflation, which has to do with the the money supply as a whole, and therefore the general price level, that's a different phenomenon. So we're trying to distinguish between those two, but it's 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 a little bit imperfect. You know, it's it's somewhat arbitrary to say that we we're not going to include gasoline, we're not going to include housing, right? That's right. That is when we strip out uh, fuel and prices of food because they are so volatile. That's the logic that is given for stripping those out. As people say, well, you just stripped out the only thing that really matters to me. Uh, on a week-to-week right. basis. Uh, that is, can I can I get enough groceries to take care of the family? Can I fill up the car to get to work? Those are the meaningful items that the typical person is buying on sort of a daily or weekly basis. Uh, but they are more volatile. But we also have the thing I mentioned in a sense that measuring rod is seriously crippled because we're talking about a command economy. And uh, if we go back to the meaning of the word inflation, when, when we first started kicking that word around in our vocabulary, by our, I mean economist vocabulary, inflation meant more money being introduced into the economy. And that was what was being inflated was the money supply. And brother, do we have an inflated money supply right now? Uh, over, over decades, the word took on another meaning, and that was the all prices taken together, as you were pointing out, and for good reason. But uh, I think we've got it. I think it's embedded. I can see no real reason why it will diminish. I think it'll be either stable or rising as we go forward. Mm -hmm. Well, and then another wrinkle here is, you know, back to that idea of relative price changes. We've got a lot of reason to suspect that many relative price changes are happening right now over the last year, you know, in terms of, there have been real supply disruptions, which should theoretically lead to higher prices. Although an interesting thing happened is in many cases, even though there were shortages of, of you know, toilet paper and things like that during the pandemic, retailers were reluctant to actually raise prices. So we can talk about that. That's an interesting phenomenon. Uh, but then there was, you know, with, with gasoline, of course, there was a, a spat between Saudi Arabia and Russia, which essentially meant that they were... OPEC was no longer effective in controlling the supply of oil. So OPEC, in, in a sense, almost fell apart. Huge demand shock for oil. People were not driving. So, you know, at the same time that we have these things that you might uh, expect to be driving true inflation, 
You also have changes in relative prices, things that are driving changes in relative prices that are making it very confusing for us to try to disentangle. Is that right? That's right. And, you know, there's one other item we can drop into uh, the the witch's brew that we're talking about here, and that is the value of the dollar. The dollar has weakened because of the preference for near zero interest rates associated with a pandemic economy, and low interest rates have been prevalent for some time now, but foreign investors are not as attracted to the dollar as they once were. And so when we go shopping with our dollars, we pay more for a barrel of oil and a lot of other things that uh, are imported that then go into the consumer items that, that we all enjoy. So it's just one more item also related in a way to uh, efforts by policymakers to deal with they per- what they perceive as a sick economy that is uh, still in intensive care in some ways. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned that it's a command economy, and that's part, part of the reason why it's difficult to disentangle this. I think some listeners might say that's a bold claim. In what way are, are we living in a command economy? Of course, the, 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 the news of the day has to do with supply chain problems, an announcement by the Biden administration that direct action would be taken now to use command to improve the production of semiconductors in the United States, to improve the production of electric automobiles in the United States, to enhance our ability to produce more rare earths that are necessary for the production of wind generators and for batteries. And so we do have command of the sort that you see in a wartime economy where the government is actually ordering private firms to produce certain things. We saw that during the Trump administration with ventilators. We ordered General Motors to go into the ventilator production, which they did, produced a lot of them. But, you know, when we say command, in a sense, it's, it's literal command. And as we play with words, trying to say, well, how would we characterize our economy, trying to pick a few words, we have an economy that is still capitalistic, that is, we have private ownership of capital. We have a growing welfare state, but now it's what I would modify as directed capitalism, not anything totally new, of course, but maybe mm-hmm. with, uh, with we are now on the double F in a musical term, as opposed to triple P or one F, it's becoming a little more dominant as we think about where we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you can sort of see the trend having an inflection point, in my view, around the year 2000. Uh, You see this in measured economic freedom. So, you know, from an economic perspective, what the Clinton years probably should be remembered for is free trade agreements, some modest deregulation, capital gains, tax reductions, and a falling share of spending as a share of GDP. And then you move from there to the Bush years. You had uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, major financial regulation. You had a whole new federal department, uh, the Department of Homeland Security. You had tariffs on steel. You had 
I guess a continued effort for free trade agreements, but nothing really, uh, you know, went through that was significant. I think there was a, maybe a, um, a bilateral trade agreement or two. You had spending as a share GDP increase. Um, you had pretty modest tax reductions offset it, but it was, you know, measured economic freedom during the Bush years went down. The financial crisis hits and measured economic freedom went down further as you saw, you know, major bailouts, a number of new spending programs, a number of new Federal Reserve programs, no new major trade deals. Uh, and then I think the Trump years sort of continued actually a lot of that. There was some modesty regulation during the Trump years, but otherwise measured economic freedom went down as, as trade wars heated up. So, you know, it, it's, it's a far cry from what was going on in the 1990s. It sort of has, I think partisans emphasize the difference between the two parties, but I see a fair amount of continuity really in the last, you know, 20 years of, of public policy. Do you? Yeah, and it's sort of interesting that, uh, you know, for those of us who were watching closely during the Clinton years, in a way now with, in retrospect, it's kind of odd to say, well, that's when we were, that's when we were observing a free market economy at its best in modern times. Mm-hmm. Uh, another measure. Mm-hmm. And of course, it gets captured in the economic freedom indices. But if we just said, well, let's just use deficits as a measure of government intervention in the economy. And both parties have become com- as apparently completely comfortable with the notion of well, let's just borrow another trillion dollars and uh, we'll pay this off later. The, those features of the economy, and we all remember when Bill Clinton, I guess in his second term, says that the age of big government is over. We're going back to markets. And they did. But as, as you point out, as we move along, it seems, and I mentioned this in the report, it seems that that isn't even an item of discussion anymore. That is, there's no longer any expression of sort of discomfort with the idea that, well, the government is going to have to step in here because the private sector, sadly, is just not performing adequately. And so we will make an explanation for government moving in. It's almost to the point where we have to make an explanation for leaving the private sector alone, that uh, the default position is now government nudging and government influence instead of private sector being the default position. It seems that we are almost there in a way. That is really fascinating. And, you know, these things go in cycles. I think of the term deregulation. And I I love to remind my friends that it was the Carter uh, administration, not the Reagan administration, which ushered in, you know, an era of Modest, uh, let's not overstate it, but modest deregulation. There was significant deregulation in certain sectors. Uh, Civil Aeronautics Board was was eliminated. So you had wholesale deregulation really of of airline industry, of trucking, some uh, deregulation of financial markets partially, but that's about as far as it extended. But that was really all initiated by Carter. It was initiated by Ted Kennedy um, in the Senate. He had a young legal aide, uh, Stephen uh, Breyer, who was helping him. And at that time, that you know, the Democrats were quite worried about, uh, like everybody, they were worried about inflation, and they were worried about the possibility that regulators could be captured by the industries that they oversaw. Now I feel like regulation or, or deregulation in, does not have that bipartisan appeal anymore. And it was once something that only Republicans talked about. And I worry that there's, it's not even something that Republicans talk about much anymore. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's that's very much the case. And, and in a way, uh, I agree with you. Mr. Carter did not get the, the respect that I would say he deserves on the deregulation front because surface transportation did take a huge hit during his time. And, and he made the statement that Democrats can deregulate some industries that Republicans have a hard time dealing with. And transportation, the Teamsters Union response was what he was referring to. Was he essentially saying that it's easier for him to deregulate than for Republicans because the Democrats were more closely allied with labor? Is that what that's, you, okay. that's, that seems to be what what was being suggested at the at the time? And uh, with airlines, uh, you know, when he received word that we're going to deregulate the major carriers, word came back to him: uh, Do you want to know how many major lines will go bankrupt? And uh, they suggested that maybe one major airline would survive. And Carter's response, well, well, they didn't support my candidacy anyway. I don't owe them anything. So, uh-huh. you know, let, let the good times roll. And and as you pointed out, you had a strong uh, Democrat senator leading the way. And so in a way, it's, it's, it's really an interesting phenomenon. That period is, as we look back at it, the Kennedy leadership seemed to be predicated on the notion that he recognized that ordinary people were paying too much to fly, fly in airplanes. And when they looked at the intrastate versus the interstate rates, it was obvious. And so there he was, Mr. Kennedy, it seems, trying to assist the people he always was claimed to be trying to assist, uh, ordinary Americans. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we have any uh, senator leadership right now on the regulatory front that I can think of, which makes it sort of interesting. But, Matt, it may be that the bootleggers and the Baptists are just taking over. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, uh, certainly the uh, the bootleggers are happy to take a, take advantage of the opportunity, that's for sure. And then I think you have this other factor, which you, you've discussed, which is crisis mentality. So in a way, actually, this, this relates to our first point about inflation. Uh, it seems to me like we may have an inflation of terms here. Everything is a crisis now, right? What's, what's going on? It is. Um, the, uh, you know, it caught my eye early on in the first few months, uh, first few weeks, literally, uh, but the first month or two of the, of the Biden administration, as I was reading uh, his statements accompanying the signing of executive orders and so forth. Well, gee whiz, everything was a crisis. That is, we're having to do this because we're dealing with a national crisis. And in a sense, it didn't matter what it was. It was a national crisis. Now, I grant, and I mentioned this, every one of these are serious problems that we're talking about, uh, whether it's people who don't have jobs or people who do have do not have access to vaccines or people at the South of our country at the border who are seeking entry and going through turmoil because of it. All of those are serious problems. But if we call every serious problem a national crisis, uh, then how do we differentiate the effort that we're going to make to deal with it? And then also it is fuel to the fire for the bootlegger Baptist phenomenon. You know, if everything becomes a major moral issue, a major national crisis, and we get the political response to those words, then we've sort of taken care of the Baptist part of the bootlegger Baptist problem. Moral high ground has been taken as soon as I signed the executive order. And now the special interests that can gain an advantage by eliminating competition or weakening it 
or in some other way getting an advantage, they are there chiming in, singing with the Baptist uh, as they make an appeal for solutions to these many, many problems. And just just briefly for our listeners' uh, sake, they've probably heard you and I talk about the bootlegger and Baptist model before, but just briefly, this is an idea that uh, Bruce has contributed to the economic theory of regulation, and it basically uses as a metaphor the idea of blue laws that prohibit the sale of alcohol on Sundays. And these are often advocated by publicly interested people, we'll call them Baptists, but they are also advocated, ironically, by bootleggers who are quite happy to have a law that makes it illegal for them to have competition on Sundays uh, or eliminates their competition on one day a week. Your idea with the bootlegger and Baptist model is that this describes quite a bit of regulation in that there's often a, a public rationale and there's often you know, a, a pretty active, publicly spirited, public interest constituency for the regulation. But there is often then a more concentrated special interest group that stands to benefit from the regulation, and they may be less uh, publicly interested, right? <laughs> That's right. And, and so the, the bootlegger has the Baptist do the battle for him, make the case, and for good reasons, you know, as, as we were pointing out earlier ago, these problems we're talking about are real. No one is suggesting the problems are not real. There are lots of problems that are very serious for lots of people. And so when you take the moral high ground, so to speak, where government says this is where government should act, and you get resonance, you get applause saying, right on, brother, let's do something about this. What really matters to the bootlegger is how you go about doing something, the fine print, the kind of regulation uh, that comes into being. Bootleggers love command and control regulation. There is no support at all from bootleggers for putting prices on pollution, for example, using the market mechanism to reduce unwanted harms. No bootlegger gains from that. But if you can say to the bootlegger, what we're going to use is a specific kind of technology. And by the way, it happens to be one that you're using. Let's Mm -hmm. impose your technology on everybody else in your industry. And now we get an advantage for that particular bootlegger. So the differential effects that come along. And there's a tendency for, Certainly now, there's a tendency for government policymakers also to prefer command and control as opposed to performance standards, which say, we don't care how you go about doing it. What matters is outcomes. And if we don't get the outcome we desire, you're going to see penalties like you've never seen before. Bootleggers won't support that. They won't command and control, and they would love to be able to put their hands on the steering wheel when the controls are being designed. And that's what we're, we're seeing that now. And I'm, I'm afraid, I'm afraid when I use the word I'm afraid, it's because it is the most costly way to achieve the desired outcome. If we could go with the low cost way of achieving these desired outcomes, we could get more of it. And so, you know, to put that in like, you know, a example, for example, of uh, air pollution and how to deal with that. So a, a command and control approach would be to say the way to reduce effluence coming out of smokestacks is to require a specific type of scrubber be installed. 
Whereas the performance standard would be to say, we don't care how you reduce it, but every amount of, you know, measured effluent that is put into the air, you're going to be charged for it. Is that, is that essentially a good way to, to think about it? Right. That is, we will be monitoring or we will require you to monitor audited data with respect to what is coming out of your stacks or out of your pipes. And when we get that data, we will compare the outcome with what we call the standard. And if you exceed the standard, you get a bill. That's it. Instead of putting stickers on the light switches that say, turn off the lights and save energy, let's just cut that out. I'm going to send you a power bill every month and and let's see which works best. But performance standards also then lead to competition where competitors say, well, I'm going to try to find the lowest cost way to get to do this job because it will be to my bottom line's benefit by doing it that way. I see. And yeah, and there's a lot of different ways to try to reduce, you know, the emission, everything from switching technologies to even, you know, shutting down production in certain areas or or certain types of production. So if I recall, there's a kind of semi-famous example of this where, you know, it turns out that the coal that's mined in the eastern part of the United States is dirtier than the coal that's mined in the western part of the United States. And so one way to deal with that is simply to reduce the amount of coal that's, that's mined in the east and increase the amount of coal that's mined in the west. And that will reduce the amount of emissions without having to impose any type of technology or or uh, without the expensive type of scrubbers. Is that right? In that story, uh, the Western coal was not organized, was not being produced with organized labor. So you lacked union power uh, in the influence that was taking place. Eastern coal, highly organized. We get a remedy that says, We don't care what kind of coal you burn. You're going to have to put scrubbers on your stacks, whether you use clean coal or dirty coal. And now we've taken care of organized labor's concern in the East and the Eastern coal producers are gaining as a result of this. The Western coal producers are the competitors still trying to work their way into getting closer and closer to the dining table, so to speak. Uh, and mm-hmm. these things go. The topic now, I guess, of not of the hour, but perhaps we might say of the century is carbon emissions mm-hmm. uh, that has become the culprit for everything uh, in an environmental sense. And, and there have been discussions of putting a tax on carbon for about as long as I can remember. We've mm-hmm. done that with sulfur, sulfur dioxide. We've gone to marketable permits in reducing the amount of sulfur dioxide, but that hardly enters the discussion in a meaningful way today when people talk about how will we deal with carbon emissions. Uh, The first thing that pops up is we're going to go to electric automobiles. And of course, the people who produce electric automobiles are smiling when they hear that, or people who produce batteries or whatever the technology may be. We tend to say it's going to be wind, it's going to be solar, it's going to be electric automobiles. We are going to stop destroying the earth. And by the way, if you do blow this stuff in the air, be my guest, we're not going to charge you for it. So we have something that is sort of illogical there, but maybe logical in a bootlegger Baptist sense. Absolutely. Well, our time is nearly up. I wanted to end on your reading desk. Uh, I know you always 
keep a full stack. Uh, what have you been reading recently? And I know it, uh, some of these books probably tie into some of what we've been talking about with the evolution of ideas. You know, the, one of the things that I'm really interested in, have been for a long time, is creativity, uh, aha moments, what might be the explanations that we have that cause a greater frequency of insights as opposed to analysis. And right now, my mm-hmm. reading is focusing on that. The work that's being done by uh, neuroscientists using the newest technology for looking at human brains as they are operating and identifying parts of the brain that seem to spark when people have creative ideas. And so Mm. that's what I'm reading on right now. And uh, I expect I'll be reviewing a book in September that focuses on, on those questions. One of those scientists has a neat acronym that she applies. It's REST. The researchers find that people who have more random episodes of silent thought use rest as a mnemonic device. That leads to more creativity, insights. And so uh, that moment where we say, ah, I have an idea. So random episodes of silent thought. And I guess most of us have very few of those. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, in a few minutes, my uh, my four- and five-year-old are going to storm through the door, and I will definitely <laughs> not have any random episodes of Silent Thought for a while. <laughs> I'll give them a hug. <laughs> I will, I will. Well, thank you, Bruce. Uh, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. I always learn so much. Uh, th- thank you for your time today, and I look forward to talking again soon. I do as well, Matt. It's always wonderful. Take care now. Thanks for listening to the Bridge Policy Download. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Overcast, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. If you would like to request a meeting with one of our scholars or ask them a question, please email Mercatus Outreach at mercatus.gmu.edu for more information.